If you have your Bibles, turn to the 24th chapter of Matthew. It's 12 o'clock, so I've got 20 minutes. Your time is important. And this message is important for you to hear in these 20 minutes. Matthew 24. If you brought your Bible and by iPad or phone or you brought a literal book, Matthew 24, verse 1. Then Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came up to show him the buildings of the temple. Jesus said to them, Do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. Jesus was talking about the destruction of the temple here. Verse 3. Now as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us when will these things be, or when will the temple be destroyed? And what will be the sign of your coming? Everybody say sign. Sign. What is the sign of your coming? Notice they didn't ask him, when are you coming? They said, what is the sign of your coming? And of the end of the age. A common theme which has been stamped into the heart of mankind for centuries has been the end of time. The end of time. To many, it's apocalyptic and very frightening. Several weeks ago, when I announced this title of this message that I'd be teaching the next several weeks, I had a, I had a, a, a lady email me in our church and said, Pastor, I decided not to come the next week when you heard about it. I saw it on social media, what you was preaching on, because that scares me. But I decided to come anyway. My children said, Let's, we're going to church. So to get them to church, because they weren't going to take no for an answer, I came anyway, and I'm so glad I can, because all of a sudden now I'm not scared anymore. See, to many, it's apocalyptic and very frightening. But it shouldn't be for Christians. The Bible tells us what will take place and what to look for, so we can be prepared and be able to handle and navigate the difficult days preceding the coming of the Lord. Now, Hollywood and the big screen, science fiction writers and uh, philosophers, uh, they, will, they try to imagine what the end time events will look like. And to be honest with you, they'll scare you to death. You watch some of these movies about the, coming of the, about the end of time, it'll scare you to death. Buildings falling over, people being killed. I tell you, no wonder people get frightened when they think about the end of time. But the child of God doesn't need to be scared. Let me prove it to you from the Scripture. Turn with me to Romans chapter 8. Look at Romans chapter 8. This is referring to what we can expect, even if days get difficult on planet Earth. Romans chapter 8, verse 38, I am convinced, Paul's saying here, that nothing can separate us from God's love. Notice what he says, neither death... Now, when did he write this? He wrote this from prison. Things wasn't going his way. He's getting ready to die. He's getting ready to die. Things are not going his way. He's not where he wants to be. Things are looking bleak. And notice what he says. Nothing can separate me from God's love. Even though life's not going the way I want it to, nothing can separate me from God's love. Neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons. Now notice this next phrase. Neither our fears for today nor our worries for tomorrow. What's going to happen, Pastor? It's not going to separate. It doesn't make any difference what happens. It's not going to separate us from the love of God. Not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky, no matter what happens in the universe, 
No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. You can take hope for that. Understand this. The subject of the end time, the subject of the end time should excite and motivate us. It should excite us to know that Jesus is returning and we get to escape this world and its difficulties. I tell you what, I'm tired of paying taxes. I tell you what. Has anybody just got their city and county taxes? Did anybody just get their city and county taxes? I tell you what, I'll be glad to go to heaven. We got a mansion that we did not build and it's, it's tax free. Glory to God. I'll just be excited about that. And I'll have money up there that I can spend on whatever I want to. I'm spending on taxes or kids. And, uh, but it should excite us to know Jesus is returning and we'll escape this world and its difficulties. It also should motivate us to live lives that are pleasing to the Heavenly Father and encourage others to do the same. The quest, the desire, the passion, the challenge to know the signs before the end has occupied the thoughts of people in every generation. 2,000 years ago, Jesus was asked these same questions. Look at verse 3 of Matthew 24 again. Now, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? 2,000 years ago, people were wanting to know. They were inquisitive about the end time. And just like today, the disciples wanted insight into their future. The future. The future is that unknown in our lives, which is a mystery. The person who knows the future can be prepared for what is ahead, good or bad. Since the beginning of time, astrologists and fortune tellers have appealed to man's inner need to know what the future holds for them. Millions of dollars. I saw another one last night. Millions of dollars are spent annually by people seeking insight to their future. You can even call hotlines. I saw one last night. You can call a hotline or go online. Now think about this. You can call a hotline or go online and for a fee, you can pay a person who's making minimum wage and they will tell you priceless information about your future. Now just put that together. They're making minimum wage... And you pay them a fee, but they're going to tell you priceless information about your future. That doesn't make sense. If I want somebody, I want somebody making a lot of money to tell me about my future. I want somebody that's valuable, not a person making minimum wage, tell me about my future. Think about how ridiculous that is. And yet people buy the thousands because they are inquisitive. I've had numerous times Christians tell me, Pastor, we will not start our day. I don't start my day unless I consult my horoscope. People are wanting to know the future. The desire to know the future is a strong pull in our lives. And Jesus never rebuked or criticized his disciples for asking about their future. Notice, notice again what he said in Matthew 24. They asked him, 
Tell us when will these things be? What is the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And did you notice Jesus didn't say, don't, don't ask that. You shouldn't ask that. That's lack of faith to ask that. It don't make any difference what's happened. You just need to believe me. He didn't say that. He never criticized them or he never rebuked them. In fact, Jesus wants to inform you about your future. He wants to let you know what's going on in the days to come. He doesn't want you misinformed. Turn with me real quickly to Jeremiah chapter 29. Jeremiah chapter 29, verse number 11. It's not that bad. I promise you, it's not that bad. What you're getting ready to get might be bad. But the future is not that bad. Jeremiah chapter 29. Jeremiah chapter 29, verse number 11. This is a very familiar passage of Scripture. We've heard it a hundred times if you've been in church very long. Listen to what he says. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Now notice this. There are plans for good and not for what? Disaster. I don't want to know the future, Pastor. It scares me. Well, God's plans for your future is not disastrous plans. I don't care what movies you see. I don't care what you hear about it. It's For you, it's not disastrous plans. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. They are plans for good and not for disaster to give you a what? Future. To give you a future and a hope. God wants us to know what our future is. And guess what? Our future is not disastrous future. It's a good future and a good hope for the child of God. Let me show you what else the Lord says. Turn to John chapter 16. The epistle, not the epistle, the gospel of John. John chapter 16 verse 13. Jesus says this. John chapter 16, verse 13. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all truth. He will not speak of His own, but He will tell you what He has heard. He will tell you about the future. He will tell you about the future. The Lord desires to inform us of what's going to happen. Here's another very interesting verse of Scripture. In the Old Testament... The book of Amos. I learned this one years ago and have leaned upon it continually. Amos chapter 3, verse number 7. It says, The sovereign Lord, Jehovah God, never does anything until He reveals His plans to His servants, the prophets. God never does anything on planet earth until He tells somebody. He doesn't do anything until He tells somebody. The Lord doesn't want His church, His friends, caught unaware. He doesn't want them. Let me prove that to you. Turn with me real quickly to the Gospel of John chapter 15. John chapter 15. Notice what Jesus said. John chapter 15, verse 15. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends. For everything that I've learned from my Father, I've made known to you. Jesus wants us informed. Our loving and faithful Heavenly Father desires for us to know His plans for our future and the things that will take place in the future that will affect our lives and the lives of our family. The reason, the reason why we are caught off guard 
by events that happen is because it's a challenge to stay spiritually sensitive in a world with so many voices speaking to us. Turn with me real quickly to Matthew chapter 25. Matthew chapter 25. Very familiar passage here. Sobering passage. Jesus is talking. He, he, t- he tells a story. He says, Then the kingdom of heaven, Matthew 25 verse 1, will be like ten bridesmaids who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. Verse 3. The five who were foolish didn't take enough oil, olive oil for their lamps, but the other five were wise enough to take along extra oil. When the bridegroom was delayed and they all became drowsy and fell asleep like some of you here in church, at midnight they were roused by the shout, Look, the bridegroom is coming. Come out to meet him. Verse 7, all the bridesmaids got up and prepared their lamps. Then the five foolish ones asked the others, Please give us some of your oil because our lamps are going out. But the others replied, We don't have enough for all of us. Go to a shop and buy some for yourselves. Verse 10, but while they were gone to buy oil, the bridegroom came. Then those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast and the door was locked. Verse 11, later when the other five bridesmaids returned, they stood outside calling, Lord, Lord, open the door for us. But he called back, Believe me, I don't know you. Verse 13, So you too must keep watch, for you do not know the day or the hour of my return. So he's talking about the time preceding his soon return. Jesus sends a strong warning to let us know that some people are not going to be ready. He lets us know that people who are invited are not going to be ready. He he lets us know that it's possible before the coming of the Lord, it will be happen that there will be Christians who will become complacent in their faith. Notice they're bridesmaids. They're bridesmaids. They're invited to the wedding. But the bridegroom is delayed. The bridegroom is, the groom is delayed. And the oil, the oil in their lamps, the oil in the Bible also always represents the Holy Spirit. It represents the anointing. It represents our faith. It represents the power of God in our life. It says the oil in some people who were invited, their oil started to run out. Their lamp, which is their light, became empty. While they waited for the coming of the Lord, the lamp, their life, became void and empty of the Spirit of God. And then all of a sudden, the word comes, He's coming, and they asked others, give me what you got, give me what you got. And they said, no, we won't have enough ourselves, go by. And when they went to stock back up, to cram for the final, all of a sudden He comes, and they're left out. The lack of passion for Jesus and the things of God in the church is one of the first signs of Christ's soon return. I'm not looking for things in the stars. I'm not looking for Israel to be invaded by Russia. I'm not looking for the 200 million man army from China to come over. I'm not looking for any of that. What I see happening is Christians are losing their fire and passion for Christ. And that concerns me. 
It's a scary thing. Question. If you and I were to give account today of our passion level for Christ, are we at our zenith or have we lost some? Have we lost some? This is exactly what Jesus talked about. How many have ever heard of the, about the book of Revelation? We think the book of the Revelation is a book of the end time. The book of the Revelation. But it's not a book of the end time. It's a book. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. Read chapter 1. Revelation of Jesus Christ. But the book of Revelation was written to seven churches. It wasn't written to Hollywood. It wasn't written to the world. It's written to seven churches. And notice the first church. Go to Revelation chapter 2. Turn over there real quickly. Revelation chapter 2 verse 4. The first church that Jesus sends a message to in the book of Revelation. And the Revelation, we think about Revelation, we think about things that are going to happen in the end. And that's true. He details that over and over again. But he's writing it to churches. He's writing it to Christians. And notice the first one he writes to in Revelation chapter 2. He says this in verse 4. I have this complaint against you. The Lord says to a church, I have this against you. You don't love me or each other as you did at first. Look how far you've fallen. Turn back to me and do the works you did at first. If you don't repent, I will come and remove your lampstand from its place among the churches. Notice to the first church he writes about the end time, he says, your passion for me is waning. It's not what it used to be. And notice what he says. You have fallen. You have fallen. And here's what's sad. They didn't even know they had fallen. They didn't even know their passion. They didn't even know they had slipped away. They didn't even know it. Christ delay in returning is not a time for us to take a break from our faith or become slothful in our faith. It's an opportunity to share our faith and develop our faith. This time we have, why hadn't Jesus come back? Why hadn't He come back? Things are terrible. Why hadn't you, you know why He hadn't coming back? He's waiting. The reason Christ has not already t- returned is because of His great mercy and desire for the lost to hear the good news. He's giving more time to the church to reach the millions who have never heard the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me prove it from Scripture. Turn to James chapter 5. James chapter 5. Therefore be patient, brethren. Patient for what? Patient for what, James? Be patient until the coming of the Lord. He's talking about the coming of the Lord. Why? The farmer, which is the heavenly father, waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and latter rain. You also be patient. Establish your heart, for the coming of the Lord is nigh. Why is Jesus not come back already? He's waiting for the people to get saved. He's waiting for the precious fruit of the earth. You know what? You and I have a role to play in the return of Jesus by we leading people to Jesus Christ. That helps Him to come back quicker. People say, oh, I just wish Jesus hurry up and come back. Well, get out and win somebody to Jesus Christ. That might be the last one he needs to come on back. I don't know when he's coming. Anybody tells you the day he's coming, they're not telling you accurate. Matthew 24, verse 36. But of that day and hour knows 
no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. But as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and did not know until the flood came and took them all away. So also will be the, will the coming of the Son of Man be. People say, oh, we know when he's coming. Everything will get gloomy and dark and all hell will break loose and we can't take another day. And you know he's coming then. No, the Bible says life will continue as always. Be eating and drinking, marrying, giving in marriage. You'll go on, people will go on with the rhythm of life, and then all of a sudden he'll come. But he shows us signs to let us know that day is getting closer. Armed with this knowledge, if you know the signs, armed with this knowledge, we can protect ourselves, our families, and our loved ones from the destructive trends that will be associated with the closing days. Now let me give you one, and I will go home. I'm getting hungry. I've been here since early this morning. Y'all had a big breakfast, not me. And you can tell I'm famished. All right? I have lost some weight. Can't keep my britches up. Glory to God. Look back at Matthew 24, verse 3 and 4. Now, as Jesus said on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the age. Look at verse 4, the very first sign. Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no one deceives you. Jesus warned, as the present age comes to a close, an end-time deception would attempt to infiltrate every part of society. The word deceive in the original language means to wander off course. He is referring to walking away from a moral position that was once held to be true. The word deceive means going cross-grain against all that was once part of our core belief system. The word deceived tells us that there will be a mass divergence from time-tested biblical standards. This is the first and primary sign to alert us that the end is near. A deception so strong that a moral confusion engulfs society with misinformation about what is morally right and morally wrong. We are living in that day. We are living when people are confused morally about what is right and what is wrong. Things 10 years ago, as little as 10 years ago, that we didn't even have a question about, now people have questions about. Isaiah said this day was coming. We've read it and we knew it was coming, but we had no idea that we would be the generation that lives in that day. The prophet Isaiah said this, Isaiah 5.20, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. It's almost like a tsunami is sweeping over our culture, attempting to eradicate all evidence of a spiritual 
and moral, moral framework. I mean, it's come in like a flood. And our children are getting caught up in it. Our children are getting caught up in it. Well, what do we do about it? Are we, are we in for it? Or what, do we, what do we do? Well, I've got some good news. Look at Acts chapter 2. Turn over to Acts chapter 2, verse number 17. It shall come to pass in the last days, saith God. In the last days. It shall come to pass in the last days. So not only is the devil going to speak, sweep across the land with a spiritual deception that's going to affect everybody if we're not careful. God's going to have a say in the last days too. It shall come to pass in the last days, saith God, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And on my men servants, on my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they shall prophesy. I'm going to tell you, not only is the devil going to have a say, God's going to have a say as well. See? So there's going to be a spiritual deception that we're already seeing like a tsunami sweeping across our culture. People that, things that we knew and lived on and have been Judeo-Christian principles, this is wrong, this is right. Now, if you believe those things, you're intolerant and you're not, you're out of the mainstream. And, and that's a tsunami, that, that's a spirit of deception. We get mad at people and want to get angry and fight. That is not the way. It's a spiritual deception. They don't even know they're being deceived. It's a deception. And while that's happening, though, God says, let me tell you something. I'm not going to be left without a voice and without a presence. I'm going to pour out my spirit also. I'm going to pour out my spirit also. Well, what do we do? You got. He's going to pour out his spirit. But you've got to make sure you and your kids are in the environment for the pouring out. Okay, you've got to make sure your kids are in the environment. And see, this is why that lack of spiritual passion and commitment to the things of God is, is so important. God is going to pour out His Spirit, but He's not going to pour it out if we're not in the environment to receive it and if we're not going after Him. We've got to go after Him. And what I see is a lot of Christians, and this hurts me and it grieves me, and I weep over this. I weep over this. I'm not mad about it. I'm weeping. I'm weeping because I know Jesus. The signs of the time are coming. And I know Jesus is coming. And I see Christians every week who are little by little falling away from their commitment to the Lord and His church. And then they get disaster hits and they run for us to fix it. And we want to fix it and I want to help them. But the seeds of deception have already been planted into their children. And you know what? When weeds come up, you know what the first thing you got to do to a weed? You got to jerk it out. And that's painful. That's painful. You say, what do you mean, Pastor? Listen, you can't... Let me say this in a way that doesn't offend you. Because I'm not mad. I promise I'm not mad. I'm, 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 I'm concerned. You can't miss church all the time. Where the word's being com, proclaimed and worship is going up. You can't miss church all the time 
And then when the Holy Spirit falls, it f- expect Him to fall on you at the ballpark. He ain't falling at the Titans games. I love the Titans. Man, I, li- I love Mariota. I love them. I wish they wouldn't play at noon. I'd go to every one of their games. I go, I love them. I love them. And I love baseball. And our son was played baseball. And, and we did the horse. When the, and the dance. I love all of that. I love all of that. But I'm going to tell you, we have Christians today who love Jesus with all their heart, but they've gotten so slothful in their faith that church and fellowship with other believers and hearing the Word of God on a consistent basis has become a take-it-or-leave-it proposition for them. And you know what happens? Well, you know what sign? We're talking about signs. You know what sign we send when we tell our children, uh, we're going to go to this competition. We're going to go to this activity. And we're going to miss church. And you miss church two or three Sundays in a row. You know what we're saying? What we're doing is more important than church. That's what we're saying. Now, I know you don't mean that. We don't mean that. But that's the sign. That's the sign we're giving to our children. And in just a few years, our children are going to be out on their own. And they're going to be approached. And all of a sudden say, well, mom and dad, they, they missed two or three Sundays a month. So it's okay to miss two or three Sundays a month. And you know what? If we take this take it or leave it attitude, you know what our kids are going to do? They're going to leave it. And it's just part of the deception of the last days. It's part of the deception. You say, how do I do to change that? Well, put the Word of God first in your home. Number one, put the Word of God first. In your home. Put number two up there. Set aside time for family devotions and discussion. Pull your family aside. You say, well, we don't have time. Listen, you've got 168 hours in a week. Everybody's got the same. You don't have 30 minutes to pull your family aside for one 30-minute session in 168 hours and say, let me read some scriptures. Let's talk about it. Number three. Forsake not the gathering with believers for worship. There's things that happen in corporate worship that will not happen in private Bible study. I, I do my private Bible study all day, every day. That's my job. But there's things that happen when I come to church that I can't get to happen in my prayer closet. And then number four, be bold and say no to unholy things. A deception is coming. It's a deception. It's not a, people are not intentionally walking away from the Lord. They're not intentionally doing bad things. They're not intentionally losing their, their passion for Christ. It's a deception. They don't even realize it's taking place. And a little leaven leavens the whole lump. The first sign of Jesus' is coming has started. It started. And it's a spiritual deception. And it's taking place in our society. And it's starting to take place in our church. But when that happens, get ready. God's getting ready to pour out His Spirit. So I need to get in a place where He's going to pour it out. 